Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. From the New Books Network, this is New Books and Geography. I'm your host, Dino Kadic. If you've ever crossed a border, you've probably thought about the boundaries of the law. When I lived in Arizona, I passed this pair of motorcycle police hunting for speeding tickets every day. I always thought it was so funny how they parked right next to the sign that said, Welcome to Oro Valley, the town that they worked for. It was like they were their suburb's border police. By the time I got to my father's house, I had already crossed in and out one more time. Messy, messy maps. But, as it turns out, territory isn't the law's only edge. Enter Alex Jeffrey's new book, The Edge of Law, Legal Geographies of a War Crimes Court, which uses the case of the Court of Bosnia and Herzegovina to show how the law and legal processes are socialized Running his way through court spaces, civil society activism, and international cooperation, Alex shows how the production of legal space and its boundaries serves to make claims to some responsibilities and not others, at the same time obscuring the law's relationship with other spaces and times. It's an excellent book, and I really enjoyed talking to Alex in his office at Emanuel College, University of Cambridge, earlier this year. In the interest of full disclosure, I should also let you know that he's my PhD supervisor. Here's our conversation. Alex, welcome to New Books in Geography, and congratulations on the publication of your second book. Thank you very much. So I want to start off by hearing a little bit about your background. Um, Could you tell us a bit about yourself and how you came to write this book? Right, well, I studied uh, geography. I've always been um, a a geographer. I studied geography as an undergraduate at Edinburgh University, while I was there, I was um, lucky enough to meet uh, Ellie Maxwell, um, a fellow student um, who was interested in and running uh, a reconciliation charity, children's charity uh, in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And if it's OK with you, I'll just refer to Bosnia and Herzegovina as Bosnia for the remainder of this uh, interview. Uh, so Ellie was running Firefly Youth Project uh, in the northern Bosnian town of Brčko. And uh, after my studies, uh, I was lucky enough to spend a year volunteering um, and working with uh, Firefly, splitting my time between Edinburgh and Bridgeco. Um And it was a really uh, an incredible experience um, in terms of both kind of giving me a, a, a sense of um, the nature of post-conflict uh, Bosnia and meeting um, incredible people uh, in, in Bridgeco and beyond, who were working in this in 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 the field of uh, reconciliation with with young people, but also uh, perhaps more profoundly uh, generating a real interest in the institutional architecture of post-conflict um, Bosnia. This was in 1999. It was only four years since uh, the signing of the Dayton Peace Accords, so things in Bosnia were still um, quite precarious, particularly in 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 Bridgeco which had been left out of the original um, peace accords. 
um, had been established in 1999 as a as a special district was a site a real site of experimentation. Um, so that's that's what I then wrote my uh, PhD was about this process of um, reconstructing Britishka district, how forms of power sharing between different groups in Bosnia had functioned in Britishka, and really the kind of politics of international intervention um, in Bosnia as a whole. That kind of interest um, culminated in the writing of um, the, my first book, um, The Improvised State, um, with the Royal Geographical Society book series. And in that book, um, I was exploring the kind of competing ideas of the state in, um, in Bosnia um, and how different actors were tr- attempting to try and garner respect and trying to um, a, a pre- present their um, activities as state-like um, using the work of uh, Pierre Bourdieu and his conceptual vocabulary of, of different species of capital as a way of trying to talk through these competing practices of the state. And it, you know, over the years became clear, and in particular over the last um, decade or so, um, that a particularly significant aspect of state building was the aspect of law and the attempt to uh, use law as a political tool, a political technology perhaps, through which um, particular ideas of the state may be conveyed. Now for me, uh, a specific case in the use of law was the, the foundation of the court of Bosnia and Herzegovina in Sarajevo uh, around 2005, and in particular, the the court's responsibility for war crimes trials and the shifting responsibility from the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia in The Hague to the court in Sarajevo, and how this new responsibility for war crimes trials was being portrayed as part of this state-building effort. And so suddenly we have this really interesting confluence between law and politics and the desire for a legal institution to perform a political function. So this is what um, is explored explored, uh, in this uh, second book, The Edge of Law. I'm interested in the ways in which um, the court has or the kind of interesting ways in which the court has played um, a political function uh, in contemporary Bosnia. Great, thanks. So I want to delve into the book, but first, just for listeners who aren't as familiar with the context, could you talk a little bit about transitional justice in Bosnia and state building and how those two things came to intersect? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting and, and quite potentially lengthy um, story that I'll uh, try and abridge. The, the the interesting part of the of the kind of transitional justice story in Bosnia um, comes because it in, in many ways has been a, a kind of laboratory of techniques of transitional justice. So this phrase transitional justice refers to attempts to provide redress, generally understood as legal redress, although you know there's an issue that clearly what, what, what's understood as justice or redress for, for the past extends beyond legal functions, but generally understood to be redress for um, crimes committed um, under a, a, a previous 
uh, political regime, often centering on crimes committed during um, conflict. And so we've seen um, very significant attempts in the 20th century to establish um, systems of transitional justice. Um, A case that's often uh, identified as that of the Nuremberg trials after World War II as being a very prominent example of an attempt to try and provide legal redress for the crimes of the Nazi regime by trying a select number of individuals for specific crimes committed during um, during the Second World War. In the case of, of, of Bosnia, in 1993, um, the, uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia um, was established by the United Nations Security Council. Now, the interesting thing uh, about the uh, ICTY's establishment is it was created while the conflict was still um, ongoing. So this wasn't so much a post-conflict legal instrument. This was an institution created while the violence in Bosnia and Herzegovina was um, still ongoing. So it was created in 1993, um, uh, a full two years before the conflict uh, ended. It was cited, its uh, central tribunal was at, at, in The Hague, um, and its, its function was really to focus on the, the key um, uh, significant military and political leaders that were seen as being responsible for the violence enacted during the fragmentation of Yugoslavia. So beyond just the borders of, of, of Bosnia, but in terms of the kind of wider process of violent disintegration of the Yugoslavian state um, between 1992 and 1999. Um, so the ICTY's um, uh, role then was quite a narrow role because, of course, the... the um, extent of culpability moved beyond simply those uh, military and political leaders. So the ICTY ended up, um, over the course of its lifespan, trying 161 individuals um, for crimes committed during the fragmentation of Yugoslavia. So it's quite a narrow um, uh, field. The, The desire to complete the mandate for the ICTY, but also to shift the, the responsibility for war crimes trials onto the successor states within Yugoslavia meant that over the course of the early 2000s, attempts were being made to try and um, establish a clear completion timeline for the ICTY to wind down its activities. In the end, to shift its activities to what's termed the residual mechanism, which now since 2017, the ICTY has ceased to function as a as a legal tribunal and has now shifted any remaining cases or appeals uh, to the residual mechanism, but to shift responsibility instead to the court uh, in Sarajevo. In order to do that, the quick kind of legal background, in order to do that, the international community had to establish a new criminal code um, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, the 2003 uh, Criminal Code, which superseded the 1976 Yugoslav Criminal Code. Now, that seems like a very uh, dry legal technicality, but actually it was a particular legal innovation 
which allowed the uh, transfer of cases and the investigation of um, war crimes cases in in Bosnia. Um, so that's that permitted the establishment of the, of the uh, court in in Sarajevo, uh, then in two thousand and five, um, and that's when the legal uh, uh, the system of um, uh, cases and investigations and uh, and transfer of trials could take place. Great, yeah. So I think that brings us to um, to the building itself, which is a really important site in this book. Um, so where where was this court built, um, and why did that matter? Well, it's a really kind of you're right. It's a really interesting part, and I think I've been inspired in my work uh, on the work on on legal architecture by people like. Linda Malkahi, who's really convincingly for me um, argued that the material spaces of law aren't just neutral backdrops against which the legal process unfolds, but they're actively enrolled in the production of legal meaning. Um, and so, you know, in, in, in Linda's work, she explores that through the history of court buildings within the United Kingdom and explores the ways in which particular articulations of space reflect particular social understandings of law and then go on to then uh, uh, intervene in those understandings. They are themselves productive of understandings of law and the legitimacy of particular legal processes. So in the case of the court in Bosnia, uh, it's located in a former army barracks about five kilometres outside the centre of Sarajevo. In what I uh, initially felt was a quite kind of unassuming spot, quite kind of uh, a, a functional decision to locate the, the court somewhere that could be securitized. It's well defended by um, a, a perimeter fence. It, it's out, outside of the of, of the centre of the of the city, which may serve some security um, imperative. But when I talk to uh, members of the um, courts, public information and outreach service, they, they said that the, the, the building had been chosen uh, because uh, by the time they, they were establishing the court in 2005, all the good buildings in the centre of Sarajevo had been taken by other uh, uh, institutions. So there, was, there wasn't the kind of capacity for a kind of symbolic structure that could convey this new legal um, this new legal institution, its preeminence within the Bosnian state. But actually, when we start to employ that kind of, that history, that genealogy of this building, something else is is revealed. Because the building was, as I said, a former um, army barracks. During the Yugoslav period, it was named uh, Victor Bubanya Barracks after the um, uh, partisan uh, uh, hero uh, in World War II, Victor Bubanya. And uh, over the course of uh, the, the, the conflict it, uh, in, in the 1990s, so in, in 1992, the barracks was, was renamed um, Rami Selchin after a, uh, a fighter uh, um, in, for the um, Bosnian uh, government army who had died uh, defending Sarajevo during, uh, early in the, in the siege. So in some ways we see in that moment uh, a desire to use the naming of this military site to embed a particular 
geopolitical regime to kind of supersede the Yugoslav past, to impose a claim from the Bosnian government's present. And so this, this use of naming. But, but the, the story is, is kind of slightly more, more complex because after uh, uh, the conflict, the, uh, the, the barracks um, let, it was used as a, as a prison facility um, during the conflict itself. And then after the, the conflict, it lay derelict before it was taken up in the early 2000s to be used as a, a court um, court building or set of court buildings. But the, the, the story becomes more complex because in 2010 and 2011, um, three individuals were indicted for crimes committed at the war, uh, at, at the military barracks while they were being used as a prison complex during um, the 1990s conflict. So we have this very kind of complex situation whereby individuals are being indicted and serve trial for um, crimes committed within the very building where their court cases are taking place. And so it's a very kind of complex symbolic geography here where um, this was drawn upon by um, opponents of the court as being a signal of the um, the lack of neutrality in this site. And I think there's a lot we could say about the, the problematic idea of any space or place being actually neutral. But but certainly it was drawn upon as, as being a site where um, the, the crimes have been committed um, against um, Serb uh, prisoners of war. This is what the indictments were for. They were used by the Bosnian government army and had were seen as being uh, a site of of um, crimes against um, Serb prisoners of war. It was picked up by civil society groups. So um, Serb um, uh, camp detainee associations uh, marched on the court building, wanted a plaque placed on the court building um, to specify the crimes. It has to be said that the crimes that those civil society groups and other political commentators refer to were of a magnitude much greater than, than that contained within the indictments and, the, and in, in the subsequent trial hearings. But, but we've got to be clear here, this is a symbolic geography that had carried particular power. So one of the first people to be um, transferred from The Hague to Sarajevo uh, was Radovan Stankovic. Now Radovan Stankovic um, was uh, tried and found guilty for um, mass rape in the eastern Bosnian town of Foča. And he used in his ICTY hearings um, for the transfer from the Hague to Sarajevo, he used this past to say that, look, there's still the blood of Serb um, uh, uh, inmates on the walls of of the uh, uh, former Victor Bubanya barracks. How can this be a place where he, as a Serb, can hear a uh, have a um, a fair hearing. Um, so it shows the kind of powerful symbolic geography that that that, that was carried through this this site this site location. Um, and I think there's a there's a kind of there's a really interesting for me geographical point here, and that is that that often this this imagination of the creation of a new institution. Um, presents the uh, the process of construction of building selection 
of the establishment of a particular bureaucratic instruments as one of, of novelty, of almost the kind of a clean break, a clean line, a clean birth of a, of a new institution, unbridled by the associations of the past. And I think the story of Victor Bubanya Barracks, the Rami Salchin Barracks, and then into being the court in Bosnia-Herzegovina points to the fantasy that, that this uh, imagination of the, um, the emergence of the, of the new as being something that is a, is a clean break from the past and instead points to the ways in which these processes are always embedded in the kind of actual existing material legacies of um, events um, of the past. And, and I think one of the kind of problematics has been the, the absence of, a, of maybe a kind of formal response to this site location and a, and a formal acknowledgement of... The, the implications of this of this choice of site and instead it's circulated within these quite informal channels and has allowed I think has permitted this imagination of some form of of bias um, uh, you know to be to be propagated by um, particularly by opponents to the legal process uh, I'm also really reminded and I've been very much influenced by the work of, of Carol Clarkson and her brilliant book, Drawing the Line, which is a book about the aesthetics of transitional justice. And she particularly focuses on the case of uh, judicial processes following the end of the apartheid regime in South Africa. And one of the things I find most kind of interesting in her, her work is, is, is to point to the, the kind of aesthetics of these processes, that they are not without kind of aesthetic practice. And that then leads to new forms of interpretation. I and mean, she looks at the kind of aesthetics of the construction of the court in Hillbrow in in um, uh, Johannesburg, as a as a as a moment that imposed and and uh, uh, established a new a new legal regime, and and used that aesthetics as a deliberate mechanism to break from the apartheid past. Now I think what's happened in in the case of case of Sarajevo and the court is almost uh, an inadvertent aesthetics. This hasn't been choreographed. In some senses, and thinking back to my previous book, it's kind of been improvised. You know, there's been a, a set of symbolic reference points that, that, that are produced through its connection to, a, to past events. And those symbolic reference points have certain capital that people can, can use to challenge the authority and legitimacy of the court. Thank you. Yeah, I really got the sense that um, many people working around the court felt that their kind of new, uh, new prerogative, new attempts were being disrupted by old issues. And I think what you really show is that there is no new or old. It's all, it's all there. It's all embedded. Um, so I think that brings me to. Um, all of these different people working around the court, um, different victims' rights groups, different people um, whose mission was explicitly to kind of bolster the legitimacy of the court. Um, so could you talk about how NGOs became part of this process um, and what role that they, they had? Of course, yeah. And, and so this was really the centre of, of the research project on the establishment of the court, was to explore 
the ways in which its work, the trial processes, were communicated to the wider Bosnian public, the ways in which the establishment of the court required forms of, of, of communication and um, collaboration with wider civil society groups. So the interesting thing about the establishment of, of the court in Sarajevo was that from the very outset, it had a public outreach strategy, which, which was a kind of innovation. This is not something that the ICTY actually engaged with for the first six years of its existence, from 1993 to 1999. It had no public outreach strategy. And so this was seen uh, uh, broadly as, a, as, a, as, a, as an error because um, it, 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 it made the work of the court more difficult. And I could explain it, uh, in some detail why you know, the, the outreach strategy um, is important. But this was corrected in the case of the court in, in Sarajevo, which had an outreach strategy at the, at the, from the very outset. And this outreach strategy was structured around the establishment of a court support network. So that, this was a network of non-governmental organisations that would work with the court to communicate the court's activities, to try and facilitate victims to come forward with um, new reports of crimes committed during the conflict and to assist with the process of gathering testimony on which court cases could be could be um, founded. So the court support network involved um, NGOs distributed across the territory of, of Bosnia, so in both um, the Republika Srpska, the um, Serb orientated part of um, Bosnia, and within um, the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, so in parts that are, um, uh, align themselves with Croat interests and with Bosniak or Bosnian Muslim interests. And so the kind of wide diversity of, of, of civil society groups. And there was funding initially um, for a short period that these um, NGOs would um, uh, communicate uh, formally with um, the court. They would have a phone line with the court that they could find out information rapidly about what was taking place. They would also you know, help to facilitate the court by involving um, public visits or student visits to, to the court itself, to sit in the, in the public gallery. Um, and so they would be kind of conduits of, of information. I think the plan as well was very much that this would be a network. So the court support network was going to actually kind of correspond with, with one another and communicate with each other. So, so connections could be forged um, uh, across the territory of, of, um, of Bosnia Clearly, you know, aspects of the establishment of legal processes in Bosnia have been very much um, established within um, the, the, the different entities, the, the Federation or the Republic of Srpska. And so this was an attempt to try and reach across different parts of, of Bosnian territory to, to, to communicate the activities of, of the court. I, I would say just as a kind of initial point, um, the interesting thing here is an acknowledgement that the, the, the legitimacy granted to a new legal institution isn't understood to be um, naturally emergent through um, the establishment of the building or the enactment of trials. The, the foregrounding of public outreach and the creation of the court support network does reflect a kind of fundamental acknowledgement 
that this is a process of communication, that in the end, this requires the kind of consent of the Bosnian public in order for this for the um, legal processes to work. Um, and I think that is, a, 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 as I said, a radical shift. It's, it's a radical shift in the sense that it sees this transitional justice process not just in procedural terms, i.e. the enactment of legal cases, but in quite substantive terms, that actually it requires uh, a substantive and wider public um, acceptance that this is a, a just and legitimate legal institution in order for it to successfully function. And so the research that we conducted was very much, as you say, uh, uh, focused on the voices of the civil society groups, which were quite diverse. They were kind of victims' rights associations. They were um, uh, you know, um, affiliates of international civil society groups. They were um, women's associations. They were a kind of wide variety of different groups. Um, and they themselves put us in touch with a, a, a broader network of of NGOs and um, social movements which were involved in this this area. So we ended up with this kind of rich picture of the the ways in which the court's activities had been received and then reworked by those that were seen as their primary audience. Um, So I've been very much influenced here by the work of people like uh, Wendy Lamborn uh, and Bryony Jones, people who have worked on transitional justice in very different settings, but have also looked at this question of um, public outreach and the ways in which public outreach itself produces a kind of set of political responses to the activities of the court. And that's really interesting because um, these are really adverse conditions for the kind of trust, for the kind of um, belief in institutions that this kind of institution requires. Um, so how do you see that um, that feeling of trust or distrust play out in the context of Bosnia? I think it's a really, really apt question. And I think this this process of, of, of trust and the very fragile nature of trust in, in these forms of institution is, is a crucial backdrop to the, to the book as a whole. Um, but particularly when thinking about the workings of civil society groups. So, I mean, my, my, my headline point would be that trust in, 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 many, in many of the interactions that we had in, in the process of, of, of researching this, this area, many of the interactions centred on, on, a, on a lack of trust, in a distrust um, in the um, ability of the legal process to really deliver the kind of transitional justice that individuals and groups were seeking. Now, there's, there's two reasons for that, one procedural and, and one substantive. The procedural one was that, that, that many of the uh, individuals that were involved in this research had felt let down by the processes, the legal process of transitional justice as enacted through the ICTY or enacted through the Court of Bosnia um, because the trials had reached a conclusion and had not um, cr- established the outcome that, that they were seeking. That There is a, a great tension in work on transitional justice generally in the, the, the problem that sentences um, do not deliver the, the kind of um, 
punitive outcome that that many of the the uh, individuals within um, the victims' associations, the victims' witnesses who've come forward, um, would expect that sentences are seen as unduly lenient. That um, and, and there's an affiliated issue here. That is that there is a there is a problem about using a retributive process, so a, a, a trials process seen as trying to deliver retribution to an individual or group for crimes committed in the past. So this retributive focus of both the ICTY and the court in Bosnia has allowed um, individuals to be sentenced for their, for their crimes. But of course, what it does not do is establish a public truth. Because even if a sentence has been passed and someone has been found guilty, if they do not themselves acknowledge that these crimes took place, if they continue to profess their innocence, then the, the historical record is still conflicted. And many of the participants in the research would talk about the fact that they, uh, the, the guilty party would end up serving a, a short prison sentence, sometimes a short prison sentence, not served within Bosnia, but served in a, in a third-party state. And, and with, that would see, be seen as a kind of privileged outcome. They may well then claim asylum in that third-party state. So there was a, an argument that, that this, was, um, this didn't assist in, in, in building kind of trust in, in, in the legal process. And that really kind of follows on to the, to the, to the second point about, about the kind of focus on law, was that, of course, for, for, for many of uh, the individuals participating, the outcome that was desired was not so much the rep- just the retribution, but, but also the, the, the issue of the missing human remains, so people wanting to, 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 to find the, the missing remains of their loved ones, um, maybe for for compensation as well for um, for their for their loss. So a kind of wider halo of issues that weren't covered um, by the legal process that were seen as fundamental um, to a, to to trying to build trust in the transitional justice process. So I think I think you know I I don't want to to in any way and I don't I don't think in the book undermine the significance of the establishment of the court as being a really fundamental step in um, creating a judicial backdrop and a sense of, of ending impunity and, and, and fostering a sense of culpability of particular individuals. But I think this took place within a context of kind of grave um, uh, distrust of certain international institutions um, and also a sense of the incompleteness of the process, that simply a retributive process was always going to be in some senses incomplete. So I really want to kind of continue on that point and start to think about the legal commons and that those pressures um, and demands put on the concept of justice. But before we do that, um, one more thing about uh, these kind of uh, NGO constellations. Um, it really seemed to me that there was also an, a normative component, a state-building component to this civil society part, mm. which is that not only does civil society kind of put pressures, demands, help to make the court 
but also that the process of doing that actually does something itself. It creates a new kind of citizenship um, in Bosnia. Um, so can you talk about how civil society and the court was pictured as a space of citizenship um, and how that actually panned out? Absolutely. Um, and again, it is a, 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 a part of the book that, 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 yeah, it's a central part of the book is to, is to focus on this, the kind of political subjectivities, the kind of how individuals who participating within the court support network and other affiliated organisations uh, was was much about kind of generating a sense of yeah I mean I suppose citizenship uh, you know in 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 terms of um, uh, participation in in the state and the ways in which this was about kind of thickening uh, uh, a geography of the state through um, these attempts to um, communicate activities of the court. One of the distinctions I make um, in the book is is between the um, invited kind of judicial process, kind of invited spaces um, whereby the, the court process, um, legal process unfolds. So obviously you know, the invited process being the, the, uh, the court um, trial processes, entering the court building, uh, the kinds of workshops and seminars that were an aspect of communicating the activities of the court. So I take these kind of invited spaces and, and kind of compare them or set them against these, the invented spaces of, of, of justice, the, invent, the invented spaces of law that we see that work through civil society. So for these, I, I look at the, the really kind of fleeting um, uh, sites and practices whereby um, civil society actors would be working with members of society to attempt to try and uh, uh, communicate the work of the court or to um, enrol that individual in a particular activity of the court. So an example would be um, the gr- uh, uh, a group we were talking to in Mostar that talked through the challenge of uh, a- approaching someone who could give testimony in the court and that that this individual had been approached uh, by the ICTY who'd sought to um, simply issue a subpoena and and, and, uh, uh, demand that this person gives testimony. And this was seen as very unsuccessful because the person was found that um, quite quite, um, disorientating, did not not appreciate that kind of sort of formal, quite aggressive um, approach by the ICTY. And they were comparing that with the approach they had, which was to to sit with this person, you know, for for, for a number of days while they did their agricultural labour, drinking raki with this person, plum brandy, and 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 kind of gaining a rapport with this individual to talk through what the judicial process would involve, what the court trial process would involve, why giving testimony was significant, not in terms of a kind of individualized benefit, but the more collective benefit to some sense of um, a future Bosnian state and the idea of, of ending impunity. And so, you know, in, in, I, I see that as a kind of invented space of justice, a kind of invented space whereby forms of interaction that are both bodily, but they're kind of involved in kind of forms of materiality. They're very much, they're very much situated in certain places and settings. They are fundamental to the operation, actually, of the court. And so the argument isn't that to identify that there are 
invited and or invented spaces of justice in contemporary Bosnia, because that much is, is quite straightforward, but to explore the way that they're entangled, you know, the ways in which actually these in, in, um, invited processes, the legal uh, uh, cases, requires these invented sites. And so in some senses, we do see, coming back to your question, we do see the court support network and the kind of uh, uh, enrolment of, of civil society as being part of, of a, a kind of citizenship building program in Bosnia to communicate certain ideas of the, the, the Bosnian state as a, as a unified and multi-ethnic whole. And, and so in that sense, we could see it as part and parcel of the, the, the long um, process since 1995 of trying to um, communicate and uh, unify uh, a sense of the, of, the, of the Bosnian state through international instruments um, and, and thereby through uh, kind of permitted forms and privileged forms of civil society that fit that normative framework. But it is not just that, because by undertaking this work and interviewing over a number of years, civil society groups that are participating in this work, they are knowing actors that use these frameworks to, to, to promote and, uh, and pursue particular ideas of um, solidarity, particular ideas of, um, of political subjectivity that extend beyond, I think, these, you know, the, 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 quite, the, the often quite dry or um, uh, uh, quite hollowed out ideas of citizenship connected to this utopian um, multi-ethnic state and instead focus on, I suppose, what we'd see as the kind of acts of citizenship, the kind of more everyday mundane practices through which forms of solidarity are built and lived. Great. Yeah, I think that really kind of gets us into thinking about um, what's so interesting and productive about your research. Um, so on the one hand, sort of more conventional views of the law, see it it's very kind of territorial in terms of jurisdiction. Um, and right, we talked about this idea of neutrality. But even kind of more critical views of the law um, historically have have undertaken almost the same kinds of um, flattening mm. that um, this conventional view takes. And I think your idea of the legal commons um, and the edge of the law really um, using kind of a geographical perspective um, really get out get at the ways that law is uneven and moving um, and a tool, um, but also a space of possibility. Um, so I guess that's a very, very broad, but um, can you talk a bit about the legal commons and about the edge of law um, and how they kind of help us better understand this specific context, this like conflict, uh, post-conflict, contradictory legal sphere, um, but also our understanding of the law more broadly. Absolutely. The the so the the book um, is entitled "The Edge of Law" uh, because I, I was I was interested in the ways in which law has been productive of space in Bosnia, and so 
that, that this this started out, I think, in my mind as the ways in which law was being used in this very kind of territorial sense. And so I started out by thinking, well, the obvious edge of law is that of jurisdiction. So the kind of territorial extent of legal uh, sovereignty over a particular space. And so that space being the, the, the territory of the Bosnian state. But very quickly, when we think about the, the kind of edge of law, we start to think of the really plural and multi-scalar ways in which law is, is, is being productive of space. And so we've, we've already talked about the kind of architectural points and the kind of materiality of the, of the built environment. But of, but of course, and, and the book goes into this in, in, in a little bit of detail, but a lot more could be said about the kind of edge of law being the, the, the edge of the body and the ways in which the human body get, becomes enrolled both in life and in death, actually, as a form of evidence, but that the body becomes enrolled as a, as a subject within law, as a subject of, that gives testimony, as a subject in the sight of, of punishment and as a, as a site of, of, of evidence. And so it, it becomes a lot more kind of fragmented, this question of, of, of the edge of, edge of law. But I think what it does do is focus our attention on this space-making qualities and the placemaking qualities of legal process of, of a legal process, um, so that was that was the, the, the kind of reasoning um, behind that. I think also um, the reasoning was that much work within critical legal studies has focused on the ways in which law presents itself as being separate from from wider society. Now that that makes that makes. Um, complete sense in a sense in, in a way that law and the legal and a, and, a, and a legal process such as trials requires uh, particular forms of expertise and so we think about um, the ways in which uh, legal expertise uh, is is detached from many of the uh, uh, wider social processes and forces and agendas and is instead a form of kind of cold rationality that um, that through which uh, legal deliberation can can take place. I'm always reminded of when I teach on this this the issue of the the image of justice that that, that you see on court buildings and certainly in England uh, on sort of 18th and 19th century court buildings of justice being a female figure who is blindfolded, an imagination of justice being blind. It is a cold uh, 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 evaluation. Um, of the facts themselves and blind to wider social forces. So, of course, what's taken place then is has been one of attempting to segregate legal processes from wider social forces. Um, now, that idea of, of legal closure, of separation, of uh, what the, 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 the brilliant legal geographer Nick, Nick Blomley would see as a form of bracketing, of kind of bracketing off certain forms of of deliberation from wider society, that's been critiqued um, quite widely uh, by scholars across a range of disciplines of the social sciences. And so I wanted to kind of um, uh, give a particular kind of legal geography take to this to this these processes of critique by exploring this production of the edge of law, not as something rigid and fixed, but something that is always being transgressed. It's perhaps a fantasy a desire to think of law having edges, but actually in practice they, they are constantly being dissolved and transgressed and reworked. 
but the edge itself remains quite a kind of powerful political um, instrument. Um, so, so that's explored in different ways by thinking about legal expertise, by thinking about um, uh, the, the separation in the urban landscape, but, but, but also thinking about the ways in which, you know, in practice through, through uh, uh, tools that we've discussed today at some length, but you know, things like the court support network, that edge is always being kind of transgressed and, and, and unsettled. This point about, about the legal commons, I mean, I, I think what it comes back to actually, and I didn't mention this when, when we talked about the origins of this work. I mean, I, I started on this project as well in, in really quite a hopeful mindset. You know, it, it started out as a, as a hopeful piece of work because I was, having studied the, the, the intervention in, in Bosnia and, and thinking about the establishment of the Bosnian state was relatively dispiriting. Many of the initiatives that have been attempted um, have not functioned in the ways that they were, they were intended. They've had a whole series of unintended consequences that have led to um, new forms of um, discriminatory politics, new forms of fragmentation, new forms of, of marginalisation. So actually I started this whole project in quite a kind of hopeful mindset that what we were seeing in, in, in Bosnia was a reflection of this the legal commons that's emerging around um, human rights law, emerging around um, uh, international attempts to uh, institutionalise transitional justice through permanent mechanisms such as uh, the International Criminal Court. And, and, and unquestion, unquestionably, this has been an important factor in this process. I think that what we see is, is uh, in, and in two ways, one, in, in simply the, the, the moral legitimacy to undertake trials for, for crimes in the past sets out um, a, a clear or, or is established through a clear agenda that is, that is one of um, ending impunity and one of, you know, that there are certain crimes that are of such magnitude they require forms of, of legal redress in, in uh, uh, regardless of the change in political circumstances. But, but also, I think, what, what, what we see is that the, the, um, the desire for uh, uh, Bosnia to, or, or attempts to have been made for Bosnia to conform to broader human rights law, and this is part of the book, towards the end of the book, where I start to think about the competing kind of international agendas we see coexisting in, in, in Bosnia, particularly where uh, the European Court of Human Rights has passed judgments that have challenged the outcome of um, trials at the court in Sarajevo. For, so, for example, war crimes trials that have been, that have been challenged. But I, you know, I see that as a uh, not necessarily wholly in, in negative terms, but but rather the the desire for the Bosnian state to be um, uh, beholden to uh, uh, international legal norms to to enforce those norms in ways that have not taken place uh, in in some of the most high profile cases, for example, the Sjedic and Finci case, where of course the Bosnian constitution was taken to the European Court of Human Rights and found to be in contravention. Of that, of that, of the European Convention on on Human Rights, and 
it's been a, a decade of, of non-implementation of, of that ruling. So I think that, 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 that for me, the, the legal commons is a powerful imaginative realm that is having some institutional kind of manifestations, but certainly for those working in civil society and working for some of the most prominent actors, this was a, a powerful set of resources that, that not only had legal outcomes, but, but, but motivated them to continue to work towards trying to end um, impunity and, and seek for forms of redress for crimes of the past. So I think this is a great segue into um, the last empirical chapter, which is called Entrance Strategies. Um, and one, it was one I really enjoyed. Um, so it wasn't just that these kind of geopolitical questions in in the court were um, questions of Bosnia, Bosniaks, Serbs, and Croats, um, but there were also other geopolitical forces at work. Um, we've talked a little bit kind of abstractly about internationals in the international mm-hmm. community, um, but can you tell us a little bit about what an entrance strategy is? Of course, yeah. No, it's. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed the chapter. I, I, I enjoyed uh, uh, writing it an awful lot, actually, because it's a chapter I wrote. I wrote last, uh, and it's a chapter that you know, the title suggests: entrance strategies. It's writing against the imagination of the exit strategy, which has been so dominant in kind of geopolitical narratives over the last twenty years, where interventions by uh, powerful international actors, uh, such as the United States, have been structured around. The idea of exit, that uh, an intervention can be made within a sovereign state, maybe a military intervention such as we saw in in Iraq, and then thereby it's working towards uh, an an exit strategy, uh, the handing over of of sovereignty to to domestic uh, political institutions and the, 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 the exit of international actors. And so this chapter is troubling that temporal imaginary and saying instead what we see in in Bosnia are are certainly transformations in the ways in which international actors are participating in the governance of the Bosnian state but this does not neatly align with withdrawal of those actors and so the idea of, of entrance strategies is to explore the mechanisms through and clearly in line with the interests of the book the legal mechanisms through which uh, international um, agendas and international institutions continue um, to pursue particular strategies. And so in the case of that um, chapter, we look at um, a number of different actually legal cases, um, but particularly focusing on the ways in which um, the US government has sought to assist in transformations in Bosnian citizenship law over the last 20 years. And so the ways in which Bosnia has gone through a a change in its citizenship law, which suspended and then withdrew the citizenship of uh, a large number of um, individuals who had fought for the Bosnian government uh, army, um, often uh, with with ties to um, Islamic states, and have sought sought to um, uh, stay and become resident and were granted citizenship in in Bosnia. But 
in line with this new uh, citizenship law, uh, were seen as a threat to the Bosnian state due to their connects, connections um, with uh, Islamist ideology. And so the, the, the chapter traces the, the really quite mundane ways in which the US government has sought to support um, the, the withdrawal of citizenship of, of these individuals, uh, thereby um, uh, uh, seeking to kind of influence the very makeup of the Bosnian state, though clearly in a way that is um, covert um, and hidden, so it's kind of after exit, it's, but is a form of, of entrance. It's a mechanism that, that allows the, the, the continued um, uh, agenda of, of an external actor to be pursued through the Bosnian through the Bosnian state. I think it also, you know, for me, I I I, I suppose I I wanted to end on a, on a kind of geopolitical note, really, to 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 talk about the kind of continuities of particular political agenda, geopolitical agendas within the Bosnian state and the ways in which Bosnia continues to perform um, a really important kind of role and function and 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 symbolism within these kind of wider um, geopolitical dramas. And I think that this this process of entrance and the ways in which you know, the US government has, by buying photocopiers and night vision goggles, sought to continue to, to pursue a particular geopolitical agenda, um, is evidence of these forms of, of entrance. Thank you. Um, so we have to start to wrap up, but before we do... Um... I want to talk about something that you said in the conclusion, which really struck me. Um, so what you said was that um, sort of talking about the embodied nature of law, it's not um, it's not just nuance. It's not just kind of scholars adding their own twist, um, but actually that that embodied nature explains why legal processes face these challenges and roadblocks. Um, and I think to that I would add kind of like the, the political economy of it, mm-hmm. um, the fact that so many people are leaving the country, right? Like all of these things um, have a role in, in the making of whatever justice is in Bosnia. But I wanted to ask kind of given, given these embodied limitations, what, what possibilities for justice do you think remain in Bosnia? Yeah, it's a really, it's a really good question. And, and in a legal system that is facing thousands of um, war crimes cases still under investigation, some with named perpetrators, some without, this can seem like a kind of impossible conundrum, you know, an impossible conundrum due to the sheer magnitude of the, of the, legal, the legal challenge. But, but I, I don't think it is, I don't think it is impossible. Um, and I, the reason I don't think it's impossible is because actually having you know, undertaken this research and obviously having worked in and, and, and being engaged in, in the kind of politics of Bosnia for the last 20 years, there are, there are glimpses and, and there are really hopeful um, processes still taking place. I think for, for me, the very kind of banal starting point would be that, that it is very important that these legal processes at the court continue however imperfect and however open to political challenge, they do form 
the, the, uh, a normative framework whereby the, the trials for, for crimes of the past are, are recognised. However, I believe that the one major innovation that's been missing in Bosnia is some form of Truth and Reconciliation Commission or, or process that, that can, that can um, adequately attend to the broader social dissatisfaction with the pace and scale of legal um, redress and legal processes. So it, there is a requirement, however late and however seemingly imperfect, to, to, to establish some form of um, truth-telling commission that can act to consolidate and bring people together as a, as a, as a site through which um, uh, the, the events of the past and let's be honest, the events of the present are, are adequately um, acknowledged and, and reflected upon. The, 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 the challenge is, is huge. I'm not going to sit here, you know, like some kind of utopian bystander saying, well, why aren't, why aren't those things taking place? It's, it's quite clear why those things aren't, aren't taking place. And it's a, a, the, the, the political landscape and economic landscape of Bosnia-Herzegovina is, is in, in, entirely set against precisely that that kind of open-endedness so it's happening elsewhere it's happening amongst young people who are you know coming together and and thinking about alternative ways of understanding the state it's happening in you know civil society groups that are that are communicating and thinking about and talking about the the, the past present and future in ways that are conducive to life you know conducive to people living and being together and so I think I think I, I don't. I, I want to remain hopeful, even in the face of clearly uh, a set of outcomes that have been um, that have been less than less than perfect, and in a political landscape that is not kind of um, uh, um, showing the, the kinds of um, transformations and and uh, consolidations. I think that many would have imagined. Um, in the in the 1990s, would have imagined that this sort of thing would have, you know, you know that kind of Richard Holbrook, the chief negotiator of Dayton, seeing Dayton as a temporary measure. You know, this imagination that the passage of time was somehow going to um, uh, lead to the consolidation of the state. That's a kind of infantilizing and problematic image, and it's completely untrue too. So, what's actually you know what we actually see clearly are the uh, the continued. Um, segregation of the Bosnian state, the continued stagnation of many of its um, political institutions. Um, so, so, but I remain committed to the the, the court as being a, an innovation that um, is acting as this normative beacon, but also the, the 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 need for forms of truth and reconciliation, however late and however imperfect, and also to to value and cherish the work that goes on within civil society. Great. Thank you. Um, so as we start to wrap up, I just want to ask, this book is fairly new. It came out in December, I think. Um, but I'm sure you sent off the proofs a while ago. So has anything changed your thinking since that happened? Anything new? Well, actually, the, the, the thing I would have liked to have done would be to to um, write about migration more uh, in, the, in the book. Um, clearly, Bosnia's location in the eastern Mediterranean migratory route makes it makes this a, a particular 
issue, especially as other states within the Balkan Peninsula have securitized their borders, leading to further uh, increase in migratory flows. It's created a a, a, a kind of a, a really kind of significant humanitarian challenge um, in a state that is struggling to 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 um, accommodate its own citizenry, let alone kind of to, to, to provide the kinds of humanitarian um, support that's required for um, for, for um, migrants. Um, and so I, I, I in, in would have would have liked to have kind of reflected on this in a, a greater length somewhere in the book to think through the ways in which you know we were talking about citizenship earlier, you know the ways in which um, the, the arrival of uh, of outsiders reveals certain um, ideas of citizenship and responsibility in Bosnia and really kind of starkly illuminates, I think, some of these issues around the legal commons, you know, the extent to which uh, people can claim asylum in Bosnia, the extent to which this is a transit and a desire to be elsewhere, which is kind of interesting politically because, as you alluded to in one of your questions, many of the residents of young residents of Bosnia desire to be elsewhere too. So it's a kind of there's an interesting kind of and, and very troubling and worrying dynamic there of um, the issue of of the migrant crisis in in Bosnia and how this is kind of a, a major and significant humanitarian concern of our time. Great. Well, thank you so much, Alex. Um, before we go, I'm sure our listeners would be interested to hear what you're working on right now. Well, right now I'm finishing up the last of three progress reports for the journal Progress and Human Geography. So the first looked at um, the, the materiality of court spaces. So we talked about that earlier in this interview, but also um, you know, it, it, the ideas within that, that work made their way into the edge of law. Um, and then the second looked at bodies um, and the enrollment of bodies within law. Uh, and the third is going to look at evidence. Um, and in particular, this question of how does experience become legal evidence? And what are the, how have geographers particularly, because it's obviously a progress report in, in legal geography, how have geographers written about um, the production of evidence? Um, and I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that, in, in, and that, that process will be a, um, a synthetic process in, in that I'll be looking across work in legal geography that's thought about evidence. And so we start to immediately think about testimony, about uh, material um, evidence. We start to think about kind of the, the geopolitical barriers to, to gaining evidence. Certainly in international law, this is often a significant issue is whether or not you know, Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch are allowed permission to enter particular sites, um, you know, as being a, a, in order to gather evidence. So the extent to which particular crimes can be erased, not because they didn't occur, but because no trace of them can ever be reported in a, in a legal sense. So I'm kind of fascinated by this question of evidence and then kind of leading on to an empirical question of how does the International Criminal Court begin to, um, uh, how does it uh, select particular events, particular atrocities as being worthy of, of, of investigation? And how are those experiences of individuals involved in those atrocities produced as legal evidence? What are some of the processes that have to occur um, and, and some of the uh, 
kind of institutions that are required. So again, kind of thinking about civil society and the kind of range, the wealth of actors that are involved in legal processes. Think about how they are also um, uh, embroiled in that in that issue. So just to give a, a concrete example, will be the, the, the plight of uh, Rohingya Muslims in uh, Cox's Bazaar in, in Bangladesh, who are t- today now um, gaining a voice in the international criminal court um, through the, uh, the support of Gambia in, in supporting their case at the international criminal court um, in order to be um, to, to, to evidence of their of their expulsion from Myanmar to be actually investigated um, not as a social process, not as a kind of the, 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 the push and pull of migratory flows or you know a, a geopolitical event, but as a crime, you know, something that actually was cr- criminally, cr- you know, in, incurs an idea of what, what is criminally um, uh, in, inappropriate behaviour. And so, you know, I'm just really interested in that, that question of evidence. So how does evidence of those processes get gathered? What, how are particular voices uh, given credence and how are others silenced or sidelined? Sounds fascinating. Um, thanks for sharing. Looking really forward I'm really looking forward to um, checking that out when it comes out. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the program, Alex. Thank you very much. That's it for another episode of New Books and Geography. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in. You can follow us on Twitter at New Books Geog and me at Dino Kadij. Until next time, stay home and stay safe.